Hey, what's going on, everyone? I'm Jeremy Lee, and you are listening to episode 5 of Reading the Play, the show where athletes share their story and experiences about life and sports. Additionally, we'll break down some key decisions they made so you can get a better understanding of their journey and where they are today. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so that you can hear other great stories by athletes. You can also find them on sportcalgary.ca. And for more content, follow the Facebook page Reading the Play. And to get the latest news, including new episodes on the way, follow on Instagram at Reading the Play or myself at Legacy. In this episode, I talk to probably the most entertaining heptathlete you will ever meet, Nikki Audenarden. Let me ask you a question. Do you happen to have those people in your life where it seems like everything they go through has a crazy story that comes with it? (laughs) That's Nikki. She's gone through so many different experiences in just 24 years on this planet. Track and field has taken her all over the world and she's dealt with her fair share of injuries, which we'll get into, but she's also developed an incredible mindset along the way and she'll share that in this episode. Well, looks like Nikki's all warmed up on the hot seat. Let's get it. Nikki Auden Arden joining me today at Story Island. Thank you so much for coming in. Hey, thank you for having me. You actually did really well on the pronunciation of that last name. I just said in the garden the entire week. That's basically go. how yeah. I practiced. That's how you taught me. Yeah. I'm very proud of you. You took everything I told you and you you applied it. That was A plus. A plus for you. So how old were you when you first started track and field? Originally? Starting out probably just for fun, I was seven, but to actually join a team, I was nine years old. But see, here's the thing. No one does track and field for fun to start. <laughs> that's that's like the most hated unit in gym class. I know. It was always funny. We had t-shirts at one point that said, my sport is your sport's punishment. And we loved it. It's and truth. Yeah, it is. It is true. Like I had had so many people tell me that running was so boring and that anybody can do it. And then we would have a race and they're like, never mind, never mind, you're right, it's really hard. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it is. Well, for me personally, I think I disliked it the most because it was so exposing. Mm-hmm. Oh, completely. You run off a line where everyone gets to start at the same distance and you have to cross a line. You all of a sudden see that not everyone is as quick as they look. What was your strongest event when you were first starting out? I don't know. I was always a multi, in all honesty. I Even from a young age? Yeah. They had, even at Peewee's, they had these things called like indoor pentathlons. And they had, it was like the throws pentathlon or the jumps pentathlon or sprints and distance. And I did them all. I would do like four to eight events every weekend. And I just, I loved them all. You couldn't, you couldn't contain me. I had too much energy. I had too much desire to learn everything new possible that my coaches just, they just let me. So I was always just a little everything kind of girl. So for those who aren't familiar with track and field events can you list off the five events in the pentathlon then Mm -hmm. so the indoor pentathlon is going to be the 60 meter hurdles high jump shot put long jump and then finish it off with an 800 and then moving on to heptathlon which you do now Mm -hmm. what are the two extra events so i do the pentathlon indoor still during winter season okay and then heptathlon is outdoor so that's the seven so we do 100 meter hurdles high jump shot put 200 on day one and then we come back on day two, and we do long jump, javelin, 800, in yeah. that order. It's always in that order. Always in that. It's not like a, a bingo ball where you pull out whatever you want. It is always that seven order. Wouldn't that be more fun, though? 
Have you ever thought about that? Oh, we have. We thought it'd be kind of funny just to put every single track event possible into like a bingo ball machine and like rotate around. But then if you pull it a 3000 meter as your first event, then you try to do hurdles right after. I I don't know how it would go. die on the track. I don't think I would make it to hurdles. I don't think I would make it through the 3K. I think that would be the ultimate test for an athlete. Mm -hmm. I think Ashton Eaton could do it. Oh, he is phenomenal. He could come back out of retirement right now and still just blow everyone out of the water possible. Have you got to see him compete live? I have. I have, actually. Just I actually only watched his 400-meter hurdles. Uh, he wasn't doing a decathlon, but it was at the Triton meet at UCSD in California back in 2013 or 14. And he just did the 400-meter hurdles just for fun. And he destroyed it. And he's not even a 400-meter hurdleist. So getting back on track. Nice pun. Good pun. What other sports did you play growing up instead of just track? Originally, I started off when I was about five or six years old as a speed skater. I did it for maybe a year. I hated the cold, absolutely hated it. And uh, on my departure competition, one of the coaches gave me a little rhythm, or um, rhyme, sorry. And she said, skate's too loose, skate's too tight. Nikki's skates will never fit just right. And that was my exit because she knew I was never coming back. I could not handle the cold. I like the oval aspect. That's why I took to track, but cold is not for me. Winter Olympics, not in the picture for you. No, not for me. They're for my sister. She gets winter, I get summer. That's how we roll. And so were your parents supportive at that young age that you started doing the indoor pentathlons? Mm. Oh, they loved it. Imagine having four kids and your youngest one is full of energy constantly. So if you can burn off some of that energy, then they were all for me running all the events. And also I had to beg them to take me to the track. They never forced me into it. And instead I forced them. (laughs) So just run through the order of your siblings. You had the one sister, Tamara, who is a speed skater who went to the Olympics as well. Mm -hmm. And then who else is in your family there? So we have an older sister than Tamara. So her name is Lisa. She's 33. She's now a wonderful mother of four and lives in Calgary as well. But she started off actually doing track and speed skating also. And uh, she did speed skating at like the national level and she was a great short track speed skater. She did long track for a little while, but then moved into 400 meter hurdles outdoors. And she was, she was quick. She's only five foot four, which is different than me because I'm 5'10". We always say God only lets things grow until they're perfect. So (laughs) she was perfect a little earlier than I was, but you know, that's okay. Uh, and she was nicknamed White Lightning. Hmm. Yeah, she She's was so quick. quick. Yeah. She was quick. And so she went down to the States, to Virginia, and did two years down there, but got injured, sadly, and had to come back home. And then Tamara, who is turning 31, and uh, she went to the Olympics in 2010. And that is a whole other story. Mm-hmm. And she is one of the greatest mentors that I've ever had in my life. I got to live with her for three years when I first moved to Calgary. And she taught me how to cook and how to stretch. She taught me how to bike and not fall over on the ice in the winter times. She taught me everything I needed to know. And then uh, after her is my brother. He's 27 years old. His name is Jordan. And he is on the uh, provincial moving towards national dodgeball team. Interesting. I know. So he has gone through a lot of adversity himself. So he's dislocated his shoulder. I believe it's nine times now, but has had two surgeries for it. They've been successful. And now we're just waiting for him to rehab back right now. And then he'll be out there chucking dodgeballs like you wouldn't believe. Sounds like a major league pitcher. Right. He's pretty good. He's quick and he can jump. So at an early age and you were starting to take track more seriously, who did you gravitate more towards in terms of maybe helping you improve your game and help you develop as an athlete? I was a Klingon, and uh, I followed my sisters around like no tomorrow, and Tamara, I always kind of, 
I watched her. I watched her really closely, and I was always amazed with her ability in sport. I would go to her volleyball games, and uh, she was a middle, and she would block like nobody's business. And I always thought it was amazing. Of course, I was still scrounging underneath the bleachers for quarters to buy a chocolate bar, but I, I got most of the game. That's important, so, though. Exactly. Candy. Always. I told you, I have a sweet tooth. Yep. It's, a, it's a problem. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I really looked up to Tamara, and I always admired her for chasing her dream. And moving to Calgary, pursuing speed skating, of course, there was a little bit less of an age gap between me and her than there was between Lisa and I. And Lisa and I obviously have our own dynamic now, and she's taught me so, so much as well. But, uh Ooh, or my mom. Okay, this is hard. Mm. See, all of the women in my life, they're yeah. amazing. Yeah. Uh, my mom and my dad, they were amazing. They would drive me to Edmonton, so from St. Albert, so about 25 to 30 minutes each way. And they started off driving me two times a week, and then it was three times, and then it was six times, and it just got to be a lot. But every single time, my mom would come, and she would pick me up from school. I would have just finished volleyball or basketball practice, and I'd be exhausted, and she'd have a little cooler in the middle, with all my snacks and I'd shovel some food in. We would drive out to Edmonton and uh, I would train and she would run the stairs of the butter dome and she would talk with all of the other moms and she was just amazing. She would <laughs> encourage so much and on those hard running workouts, I could hear her yelling from up high, go Nikki. And I was like, okay, mom, I can go. <laughs> and they were amazing. And like my dad did the same. Like I remember driving with him and we would listen to crazy music on the way out and just have so much fun. And then on the way home, we would analyze and we'd talk about what I did and what I could have done better. And he was, he was my analyzer and he would try to coach me. He knew nothing. Don't tell him I said that, <laughs> but he, uh, he was a great teacher still because he always would just teach being relaxed and having fun and he would help cue me and he just wanted the best for you always always dad's right dad you'll, you'll go to learn that yeah don't worry that's right <laughs> no in short honestly every single one of my siblings like i am extremely blessed and fortunate to have the family that i have because we are so incredibly close like my brother still to this day will spontaneously call me and just say good luck i believe in you Awesome. You deserve this. Like, keep tracking. I'm like, okay. Yeah, I couldn't have been here. Even my coach realizes it to this day. Mm -hmm. He's like, if you didn't have the family you have, he's like, I don't know where you'd be. We were chatting earlier, and you were mentioning about some advice that maybe you should have taken more seriously from your sister. What exactly were you talking about there? I still remember to this day when I was 21 years old, and uh, she was stretching in the living room, and I was stepping over her and curling up on the couch with my cup of tea and watching her, and she's like, you should stretch. If I was 21 years old, I would be stretching because I would have learned from my mistakes by now and I would have been stretching. And I remember laughing at that and kind of scoffing it off. And she's like, Nikki, you've had surgeries before. Like, you should be stretching. I was like, no. Like, I'm fine. I'm healed. It's all good. And uh, that was not the truth. I should have been stretching. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it sounds so tedious, but that was one of the things. And also not to take life too seriously. I believe that everyone has a type A personality in some regards. So mm. I'm type B for the most part. But put me towards track, I'm type A all the way. I'm type A with where my shoes need to be. Or if training's at 9.30, I have to be at the track by 9. I can't be there at 9.10. That's too late for me. I get, I get anxious. And so track is my type A. And so she taught me how to relax a little bit more, how to take it fun and just enjoy it and just enjoy the fact that it's a sport and it's the greatest thing ever. Did you discover being type A on the track at an early age? No. Or was it something you realized much further down the road? Uh, I think I always had those tendencies. I didn't have a name for it until about two and a half years ago. Hmm. When one of my friends was like, oh, you're a type B, but everyone has a type A in some regard. And I was like, 
well, what do you mean? She's like, well, I'm type A when it comes to school. And she, she very much, she's very good at planning. Everything is very meticulously planned. I'm like, oh man, I am so type B when it comes to school. Yeah. And, uh, and then she's like, yeah, but you're type A with track. Your dad's type A with electrical. Your mom is type A with her dance moves in the kitchen on a Saturday night. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we all have our moments. That's true. Yeah, whatever it is. Exactly. When you decided to take it more seriously, what did competition and travel and weekends and schedules look like for you and your family? Yeah, uh, they were crazy. I was still doing volleyball in all of my high school until my uh, my grade 12 year. I actually went to my first Worlds at the end of grade 11 summer. That summer I went to Worlds as a heptathlete and I was planning on coming back and playing again for the senior volleyball team for the third year in a row with my other best friend and it was going to be great. But at Worlds, I was doing the heptathlon. It was my first international heptathlon. And two days before the competition, I was doing a long jump practice and I blew out my knee. And it just hurt so bad. And I, I did the day one of heptathlon and ended up bowing out. But uh, yeah, that was my first major international series. So I was 17. But personally, with heptathlon, I started specializing when I was about 14 years old. I went to my first nationals as a Legion national. So I was an Alberta representative. Jan Lips out of Calgary was the one who mm. convinced me to do the full heptathlon. It was my, my first time ever, and uh, I didn't win, <laughs> actually. It went well, but I, I actually don't even remember what happened, in honesty, but I did not win. So it, it was interesting starting off the event that I now love and am successful in as not being successful. And also a bit unconfirmed with the results. Yeah, exactly. So everyone's always like, oh, you'd be a great heptathlete. I was like, yeah, you think I would? And I went and I did it. And I was like, I'm not, guys. You're, you're all wrong. So thanks. But uh, So what was your feeling like coming out of that first competition for you? Joy. I completed seven events. I competed with an amazing field of females. I learned a new sisterhood. Because in heptathlon, you get two days with these girls. You know each other's weaknesses and strengths. You know that the scores are going to go up and down. But we had a sisterhood. We knew it was going to hurt together. It was such a joy-filled event. All of a sudden, I realized at that moment, I was like, this this is the event for me. I am a heptathlete. I am a social person, and this is a social group. And you can be weak and strong all at once and still be successful. And then moving on a little bit later, you go to Legion Nationals in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. What was that competition like? So that was, so I did my first Legion Nationals as a heptathlete. I did my second one as a long jump javelin thrower. I didn't love it as much as I loved the first one. So I went back to being a heptathlete. And uh, my uncle actually showed up right before hurdles and he gave me lip chap in the warm up zone. And he was like, good luck, Nikki, you're going to do great. And I was like, okay. This is amazing. My uncle just flew all the way across Canada. Didn't tell me he was coming just to support me. That's amazing. This is going to go well. It just has to. And it was such a grind. I remember me and the top two other girls, we fought throughout the whole heptathlon. One girl spontaneously had a high jump PB of 177, and usually she jumped a 167, so 10 centimeter PB. So she jumped in the scores, and then she was ahead the whole way, and then Javelin came up. I'm stronger in javelin, thank the Lord, I have a quick arm. And so I jumped ahead of her, and at that time, even though I sucked at the 800, I was still a little less sucky than the rest of the field, and I was able to manage to squeak out a gold. And that was the first meet where I realized that, like, you truly have to fight every single event. You have to fight, complete the event, cross that line, and walk away from that event and move on to the next. 
you can't just keep on thinking about the past one, the past mistakes or anything like that, because you're going to make a new mistake in this next one if you're thinking about the past. So from what I gather, heptathlon really is a competition of who can stay focused the longest and most consistently for seven events. Yeah, and for however many years it takes to get you ready for those seven events. Hmm. That's the hard part. Like the competition, don't get me wrong, the competition is hard. You feel like you're breaking mentally, emotionally, physically the whole time. But the training, the training is even harder. So I just wanted to circle back to your first World Youth Competition 2011 in France. And I wanted to ask you a question just around expectations to get on the podium. And you were mentioning prior that maybe those expectations were there. You might not have known before the competition, but they were there. So I want to know where these expectations for you to get on the podium even come from. How has it developed for an athlete at such a young age? At that point, your body of work and your resume really isn't all that complete yet. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a good question. As an athlete, your greatest expectation is the one that you put on yourself. And you learn those expectations and you assume those expectations. So at that age, I had very little expectation for myself. It was my first international. It was my first time being a, a podium threat, sorry. And, uh, and I didn't realize how much potential that had. I didn't realize how much weight that expectation carried until I started to get older. After I got injured, one of the coaches had mentioned to me that if I didn't complete the heptathlon, that I would never make a Canadian team again. And all of a sudden, I felt the weight of that statement. Because all of a sudden, this competition, that mattered. How much money was spent on myself, coaches, IST team, my parents were there. All of a sudden, those expectations of performance, of putting on a show, of competing to the best of my abilities of getting on that podium, those became so real. And so after that, every competition after that, there's greater and greater and greater expectations put on me that I fostered and that I created from what I assumed everyone else had put on me as well. Mm -hmm. So of course now there's expectations. Those are very real expectations now. Those are standards that are set out by my national sport organization that I have to reach. There are numbers that my coach put out that he assumes that I can reach. And then thankfully my parents at this point, they're, they just understand completely now. And they're like, just do it because you love it. Go run in a circle. Go jump over something. Chuck a ball. Stop thinking. And that has been one of the hardest things that I've had to learn in the last three years. One of the hardest things is to deal with expectation. So having a sports psych trying to teach you that everything is about 80% mental, 20% skill, doesn't matter how athletic you are, how fit you are, how technically sound you are, if you're not mentally prepared to deal with the expectations, the failures, the adversities, the successes, you're not ready. So the external expectations, can you block them out completely or is it something that you have to learn to just maintain? You probably could block them out completely. I'm learning to do that now. I'm learning to block out all of those expectations. It's a work in progress. And so now when I'm competing, I have to block out everything and just think of one cue. And that could be get out of the blocks quick. That could be right foot down. Could be something so incredibly simple, low, 
That is just a single word that I have to use to block out all expectations of performance, of how far I should be throwing a shot put, how quick I should be running. Arms coming off a straight. You need to use your arms. And so remembering those cues, those kind of cancel out the expectations while you're performing. Right, yeah. And that's a progress. You have to work on that in training. Have you always had a favorite event? No, it depends. It really depends, depends on the day? Yeah, it depends on the day. Like some days high jump is like the most magical thing in the world. And then other days you can't find your rhythm at all. And you're knocking down every single bar with your head, your arm, your body, and you're just, you're fumbling everywhere. Some days you love hurdles. And then the next second you hit one so hard that you're rolling across the ground wondering what city you're in. And so it just, it depends on the day. Sometimes shot put is my like guarantee you're going to get great points in this. And then all of a sudden, once you're in the ring actually competing, it's wow. Don't embarrass yourself now. So yeah, it can change every single day with seven events. The thing that we work on so much instead of having a favorite is learn how to be consistent. And it's really hard. (laughs) It's a practice for me, especially. What is one event that you can train for as hard as you can, as consistently as you can, but in the end, come performance day, competition day, is the most out of your control. None of them. You have the control over every single one of them in one shape or another. That's the hard part. That's the hard part of elite athletes is mastering that control and understanding that in the morning, if you're having a really crappy warm-up and you bring in that mentality going into your hurdles, you're going to have crappy hurdles. So that's why it's constantly readjusting and changing. So... That's why the best in the world are the best in the world is because they've mastered consistency. They've mastered their mind. So within the heptathlon itself, the two-day competition, what's the hardest transition between which two events? Mm. It depends on the performance of each event. So the hardest thing for me is when there's a big gap between events. So in Australia for Commonwealth Games, we started at 9 a.m. and we finished at 9 p.m. And there's a five-hour gap in between our four events. It was so hard because all of a sudden you're not just flowing through. You're not being rhythmic and you're not being warm. And yeah. Aren't there standards though? Like You have to have a minimum 30 minutes in between. Otherwise, free for all. You could take like half a day off. Yep. That's what they do sometimes. So they do 9 a.m. for hurdles, 10 a.m. for high jump, come back. At like five for shot put, and then you run your 200 at seven or eight. Do you know the structure of the competition in that regards before you enter? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we get our schedules a minimum of two months in advance for major league internationals. They are subject to change. So you know that the five-hour gap is coming. Yeah, we trained for it. We try to at least. It's always interesting to try to train that here in Calgary because you'll do a couple events and then you're expected to go home and eat and then maybe take a nap and then come back and still perform and train for the last bit of the day. And for me, I was in classes at some point. So it was, I would train, eat, go to class and expend all my mental energy there and then come back to the track and try to, try to once again perform and you just feel dead. And so it's learning, as I said, training is the hardest part. So it's learning how to deal with that and how to adapt with it and to supplement with food. Or for me, coffee. I love coffee and caffeine. My coach is trying to make me quit, but I'm not going to let him. (laughs) It's my happy place. Um, But it's it's learning how to supplement every single day and every competition. And it's, it's almost like a formula. But every single athlete has a different formula. And there's so many different variables tossed in each time. What's the heat? What's the humidity? What's the UV index? What's the time in between? 
how did your event just go? How is your next event going to go? Hmm. How are you going to think about it? What does your coach say? <laughs> right. There's so many variables every time you compete, but there is still kind of a set formula. And that's what we're trying to master right now as well. Do you enjoy that? Just having to adapt on the fly all the time? I suck at making plans. But uh, if you do give me a time, if you say we're starting at 9, I will be there <laughs> at 8.45. Because there's certain things that I, I need to be on time with. But then there's other things where I know that I have to be adaptable with and that I have to just change. And so my mom always used to say, expect the unexpected. Be prepared for anything. My friends make fun of me because everywhere I go, I always have snacks in my backpack. Always. Doesn't matter where we are. Are we flying somewhere? Are we in the middle of class? Are we in the middle of night somewhere? There's food with me always. You have to, yeah. Right? Yeah. No one likes hangry. No. You're nearing the end of high school and suddenly you're thinking about wanting to pursue this for post-secondary. Mm-hmm. What does that journey look like for you? Uh, so in the collegiate system for NCAA, they allow you five official visits where you're allowed to be on the university campus for 48 hours and they're allowed to pay for that, the flight, accommodation, and food. And so what they do is they try to wow you. So they're allowed to start contacting you a year before official signing date. So that was my grade 11 year in that summer time frame was when I started getting contacted. And uh, luckily for me, as I mentioned earlier, my parents care and they love so much. And so they actually, probably I'm assuming, would stay up super late and reading through all of these universities and their morals and their student academia, their athletic success. And they actually, my mom, she would track heptathletes from different schools. She knew heptathletes across the states better than I ever did because she tracked them. She tracked their performances, how they did once they came to the school, how they did once they left, injuries, everything. And so luckily my parents cared so much. And so I didn't even know it, but during that year, I received uh, over 37 full-ride scholarships within Canada and the States. I only knew of about, I think, 12. And there are some that were really persistent, like LSU was really persistent after me, and uh, Arizona, I believe it was, and Virginia, and then San Diego State University. And they contacted my coach at the time, my high school coach, Linda Blade, because I have a hyper-loyalty about me. And so they knew if they could get her, they could get me. And that's exactly what they did. What was that decision-making process like for you and your parents, though? One of the fascinating conversations I like to have with athletes is their priorities or their values in choosing a school could potentially be different than yours. Sometimes the athlete values the program itself, maybe the location, Mm -hmm. the school, the campus. Mm Mm-hmm the feel of it. So what did it look like for you and your parents? Uh, So as I mentioned earlier, my parents have always been incredibly encouraging about everything. But my parents also never forced me to do anything. It was me who always forced them. So I always forced them to let me go to training or I always begged to go to additional camps and competitions. And so sometimes my parents got a lot of flack for other parents, they're like, you're pushing your daughter too hard. And the reality of the situation is they were constantly trying to rein me back. And so luckily for me, they knew that about me. So they knew that I really wanted a good program that would respect me. At that time, I was injured, so I needed a surgery. So we needed a school that would take me on and give me a surgery and rehab me and take care of me for four years so that I could trial for the 2016 Olympics at that time was the goal. And so... 
luckily my parents they left a lot of those choices up to me like my mom is sneaky and she would sneak in lots of the school's names into my head and I would look into them and be like "Ah, no not really I don't really think of that and like she didn't tell me at all that I had offers Hmm. and so I actually asked a couple of my high school friends and I had a lot of like the football team were all very obviously into the NCAA football system and so I would come and I would bring a sheet of paper in front of me and I had a list of the schools that I was potentially allowed to go visit and they would pick them out for me. And they're like, you need to go to Oregon and like all of this stuff. And I was like, of course I need to go to Oregon and be an Oregon duck. I was like, that's the creator of Nike. I'm like, of course I have to visit there. And then someone was like, well, you have to try LSU. That's where Lolo Jones came from. She's a mm. great hurdler. And also they bring a tiger onto the field during the basket the football games. And I was like, yeah, well, who doesn't want to see a tiger? That would be amazing. And then my older sister, Lisa, went to Liberty at Virginia. Right, yeah. So I visited Liberty at Virginia. And that was one of my favorite schools, actually. But Mm. the reason I didn't go there was I didn't know if the track program was exactly what I needed to get me to where I wanted to go. So what did your visit to SDSU look like? Mm, The first time I went, I actually was in April. So it wasn't my official visit. It was an unofficial visit. And I had just finished a HEP in California area. And me and my mom were staying a little bit later, and we went down to SDSU just to check it out. And uh, Sheila just took me around the school, and it was gorgeous. There was birds of paradise and within the court halls. We called it the Little Theater, and it had mosaic ceilings. The track was old. That was something I always remember as I went to the track, and I tapped it with my foot, and I was like, this is going to give so many athletes shin splints. Are you going to change it? She said, we're in the process. I was like, oh. Okay. Okay, well, that's great news. Like, I'm not here for another year and a half. Like, plenty of time to fix things. I left kind of liking San Diego. I remember we also went to UCSD in that trip. And uh, as we were going up the stairs to the track, uh, I think it was an eagle or a hawk swooped down and it killed a bunny rabbit. And I was like, Mom, the bunny died. That's a really bad sign. And then we went to the beach later on. And it was the first time that there was a shark sighting in years. I was like, Mom, a shark sighting. This is not good. And not I was the like, place no, for me. no, exactly. And I was like, California is really not doing well. Yeah. And so we went home. And so, as I mentioned, I went to those four schools, or I went to two schools first. And I went to LSU and Virginia first, it was. And the coach at LSU actually gave me a great hint. And he said, as you're flying home, write down the pros and the cons that you found at this school. Man, was I grateful for that advice. Hmm. I didn't end up going to LSU couple bad experiences there during the recruitment trip, but amazing track program. I didn't end up going to Virginia. Once again, I have one of the greatest friends that I've ever met, and we only met for 48 hours, and it's been six years and we still talk. I didn't end up going to Oregon, even though it was an amazing experience with a great corn maze. <sighs> All right. And have you seen the campus? Oh, have <laughs> I seen the campus. <laughs> I wanted to be an Oregon duck so badly. I wanted to follow in Brianne Thiessen's shoes. <laughs> Yeah. It would have been amazing. But uh, my coach at the time, my parents and myself, we agreed on San Diego State. I went for my second visit there, had a little bit more fun. The girls took me to go prank one of the other girls, so we put sticky notes all over her car, and we baked a little, and and it was a fun atmosphere. It was an all-girls track team versus everyone else was a multi. They had male and female. It seemed like a good choice at the time. Athletes talk about it has to have a the right feeling for them. Mm-hmm. Did you get that feeling? At San Diego, honestly, no. In, uh, in my two visits, I didn't get it. And when my parents helped set me up in my dorm on my first day and they left, I don't know if it was because I didn't know if I was supposed to be there 
where they weren't supposed to leave me, but I cried. I cried so hard. I remember actually on our flight down, our flight got delayed until like three in the morning in a random city. And then we had to stay in a hotel and get up at 6 a.m. And so I remember thinking, I was like, man, there's been so many bad signs for this place already. But then once I got there, I met one of my best friends in the dorms and life kind of seemed to flow a little bit better. I had the surgery and they treated me really well and they rehabbed me back. We had a lot of fun and the track team was great. And I started to feel like I belonged. The coaches were a little bit more aggressive than I originally thought that they were going to be, but I was told that I should expect that. Before we get into that, what was the rehab process like for your knee? How was that experience for you there? <laughs> uh, I had a great athletic trainer. At the time, she was just a student, and uh, she was so calm with me. I remember, apparently I don't do well with drugs after surgery, so I was supposed to be in a wheelchair, and she was bringing me back to the athletic training center and taking me down the ramp and I remember getting up and trying to run and she was like Nikki no and I'm running away with my leg in a cast and trying to beat her there and she was just so mad at me uh luckily it was just a scope out and they didn't have to like recreate anything in my knee it was just a clean out and just like remove some torn up stuff that was getting caught and the rehab wasn't too bad I always knew that I was going to come back healthier I expected it I had a full support team. My coach at the time was so supportive. And so at that time, it it didn't even seem to matter. I was naive to it all and just in this place of bliss. And it came back quick. And I was fit and I was running well with the other girls. And even though I had missed like two, two months, I think, of base season, And I had to go in every morning. So we trained at 6 a.m. I had to go in every morning at 5 a.m. to go do rehab. And I would do rehab for an hour go train and we would train from six until about nine then we'd go to the gym and we would lift and the coach once again was just amazing in there Chris Jerk was his name and then I'd rehab again for another hour and then I'd go to classes and it was just a great schedule as I said it fit my type a personality for track perfectly so you suffer a second significant injury and it turns out that you get diagnosed with Morton's neuroma how did that come about Uh, It was actually after the complete rehab of my knee. I was back training full-time and competing and things were going well. And uh, in December, I started noticing this pain in my foot. And I didn't know if it was because of the new track shoes or maybe it was a new surface. As I mentioned, I wasn't a fan of that surface. But it was the new one that they put in. Not yet. Not Not yet. yet. They didn't even put in the new surface until I left San Diego. They just got it. They were in the process of getting there. That's a whole nother day. No. And so uh, I came back in January after having Christmas break and it was just unbearable pain in the bottom of my foot. And every time I would step, it felt like someone was taking a hot knife, putting electricity to it and shoving it through my foot. And so it just hurt so bad. And so they gave me cortisone. And it wasn't my first time with cortisone. I had three injections of it into my knee at one point in time. I had... Yeah, I had it all in my knee at that one time. But uh, moving forward, they they gave me an injection in January. And then I competed and it was fine. And it started wearing off by about April. So I got another injection and it was fine. And then it started wearing off right at NCAAs. Right again. It was so frustrating. And, uh, And so then I did the heptathlon there. And I was a freshman. I was the only freshman there for the NCAAs. And I had an expectation that I could podium. If you notice, there's a little bit of a trend. That's right. Yeah, and uh, I was pretty proud of that, and my parents were proud, and they had shown up, and my uncle and my aunt had shown up, and everyone was there once again. And all of a sudden, the expectation sunk in. 
Hurdles went okay. I went into high jump, a little bit of pain in my foot. I could feel that Morton's aroma kicking back at me. And I just felt rigid. I got terrified. It was in front of thousands of people at Hayward Field. My coach and I had been struggling with our high jump approach like all season long. And she's like, you can do it. It's fine. And I asked her if I could start at 160 as a starting height, which is fairly conservative. And she said, no, 163. And I was like, oh, okay. And as I said, I'm a hyper loyal athlete. So I was like, okay. 163 it is and I was just so rigid with fear that I I couldn't do my approach and so I triple faulted and it wasn't my first time triple faulting in a heptathlon in a competition and so very defeated I was sobbing in the middle of Hayward Field and uh, the girls were all trying to support me and lift me up and encourage me because they're like no you can do this it's fine like complete the heptathlon you're not a quitter and I went over to my coach and at that time, she was actually really understanding, and she was like, do you know what? That was that was pretty sucky. That sucks. But guess what? You're not a quitter. You're going to compete. You're going to finish this thing. I actually begged her to let me quit, and she wouldn't let me at that time. And so I completed the rest of the heptathlon, and out of 24 girls, I managed to get 22nd. Somehow, I beat somebody else who had completed all the other events. And I was like, huh. That was horrible. (laughs) That was an awful experience. But at the end of it, I have a picture of me walking away from the track after the 800 with the girls. And I don't think I could have ever been happier in my life. Mm. I had overcome an adversity in front of thousands of people. I had overcome an adversity after completely getting destroyed by expectation. That was a moment of success for me. That was a greater result than you could have imagined. If you would have asked me that before hurdles, I would have told you that's the worst result I could have thought of. And it's crazy how perspective changes after a moment. So it completely changed everything that I thought was success. My definition of success was changed in that moment. So then after that, I had to get the surgery, though, for my Morton's neuroma. <laughs> Let's jump to 2014, where you've gotten that surgery for Morton's neuroma, and now you're back on the field. But once again, injury bug hits again. Mm-hmm. Uh, even just during the base season, I vividly remember having come back from the Morton's neuroma surgery, and we were doing beach runs. And so we were doing 200-meter sprints, in the sand and uh all of a sudden I've, i could feel the instability in my ankles and i i complained about it to my coach and she's like it's just your surgery it's just from your foot it's okay work it off and i kept on complaining about it, kept on complaining about it and at this time we had a new head coach or a new assistant coach sorry and uh so that whole base season i kind of struggled with that ankle hurting and uh even just doing hurdle drills i remember stepping down wrong on the hurdle and rolling it again and it, I just kept on rolling it and tweaking it here and there. And our trainer at the time, his name was Paul. He was a very kind guy. And as I mentioned, he would come in an hour before training. He would tape me up. He would do all of the rehabs necessary. He would sit at the track for three hours watching us train, giving me drugs and dealing with me sobbing and just not being in like any, <laughs> any comfort whatsoever. I hated it. And I was so emotional all the time. And at this time, our new assistant coach was now very aggressive at least towards me it felt and uh actually at this school at this time that year i experienced the first thing of reverse racism as well so our our um, african-american team members they would sit by the long jump pit our white members we would sit by the garage and they actually we disassociated ourselves with each other and i i firmly believe that it was due to the coaching is because all of a sudden there was not an entitlement but Things just changed on the track. And so that coach and that team, that group, they were were more aggressive to us in general as well. 
And so I remember complaining once about my ankle and one of my teammates who was my friend the year prior was calling me out for it. And I was like, this, this isn't like you. This isn't right. You used to support me. And at one of our indoor conference championships, I had to do a pentathlon and then all of the open events as well, plus the relays. And I was waiting for treatment because both of my ankles were so swollen and so painful that I could hardly walk. And our physiotherapist, our athletic trainer at the time, sorry, he was giving a back massage to one of our African-American teammates because she had to triple jump in two hours. So I had to compete in 20 minutes and could hardly walk and she had two hours and she was getting a back massage. And it was just, it was ridiculous. And so I luckily got taped up and I went on and I competed and whatnot. But that year, the coaching staff was completely different and how they approached things was completely different. And they made me push through a lot of pain that I wish I never would have. So there was times where in between competitions during the days, I would train with my ankles taped. And then as soon as training was done, we would ice it. And then I would be put into a boot. I'd go to all my classes in my boot. Meanwhile, there's four or five other girls on our team in boots as well. And I would be in a boot, they would be in a boot, we'd come back to training, take a lot of drugs. We called um, Voltaren, we called it crack. So we'd be sitting there, we'd pass a crack, and we would literally pass around Voltaren to try to numb out the pain. And the sports psych at the time told me, pain is just a feeling, and you can suppress all feelings. Year two at San Diego was a really hard year on me, and it was hard on my body, it was hard on my emotions. I remember calling my sister Tamara and just sobbing on the phone. And I feel bad for her because I'm sure there's times in the week where she just didn't want to talk to me anymore because I was just so negative. When I was younger, they called me sunshine because I was always just the happiest person around. And then that year, <laughs> they called me salt block because I was salty, I was bitter, I was upset. Who do you go to, though, at San Diego when you're just emotionally drained, when you're just dealing with all the garbage? Yeah, I had two or three really great friends, one of them who was on the track team as well, Eva Devadova. And so she was the best friend that I made in my first year of university there. And we lived in the dorms together and we were inseparable. So wherever I went, I went. Where I went, Eva went. And so she also was in a boot at the time. She was one of the other five. And so we were boot buddies and we would just, <laughs> we would sit at home with our feet in ice buckets and we would just watch TV or... Eat ice cream. Yeah. No. Well, we ate a whole chocolate cake. <laughs> we ate a whole chocolate cake once. <laughs> we went to Trader Joe's and they had a massive chocolate cake, like a nine inch chocolate cake on sale for $8. And so we bought it and we sat there and we ate an entire chocolate cake between the two of us. It was a horrible life choice but a great one at the same time. And so Eva was one of my confidants. And we were like sisters at the time. And so she was there. She was experiencing everything the same that I was versus my family who was back home. So they didn't quite understand the depths. There was, of course, like a competition where um, my parents attended and Tamara came once again. She came to all of my meets in California that my parents would come to. And it was just how it went. And she was there watching me compete. And my coach came over to them and I just had a successful hurdles and high jump. And my parents were like, oh wow, she's doing really well. And uh, my coach at the time was like, yep, she responds really well to yelling. And my parents just looked astonished. They're like, uh, no, from what we know, she loves high fives. Like mm -hmm. I've never heard of yeah. yelling being a great motivator. And that was when they kind of clued in that, that something wasn't quite right. 
And so as I was laboring still with my ankle and having a coach that was motivating me through yelling, they kind of started to clue in that they should be aware and that they saw things firsthand, how they really were, not just how I was telling them, because of course you're upset. And uh, I always say you remember the worst more than you remember the best. And you talk about the worst more than you talk about the best. And so they always heard the worst, but I think they assumed the best. But they had the vivid experience once they came down and saw you go through all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they really did. And then the most vivid of all was once again at Hayward Field the following year. I was a sophomore this time and doing the heptathlon. And once again, there was, there was podium potential. Once again, hurdles went well. And then high jump, I triple faulted. I couldn't deal with the expectation even more so than the year prior. Couldn't deal with the stress, and I just kept on remembering the year prior. So you couldn't block out the year before? Not even close. I hadn't been taught how. I hadn't Mm. learned how. I didn't teach myself how. And so that whole season, I had been jumping really well in competition. And then all of a sudden, I got there, and I just... I remembered everything. You see everything. You hear the things again. And it looks the same. And all of a sudden, you you get pulled right on back into that memory. Did you start at 163 again? 163? Not by my choice. Well, it is by my choice. Actually, do you know what? That's actually really wrong of me to say. It was my choice in the end. They can recommend things. And then in the end, it's your choice to tell the umpire what you want the bar to go at and when you want to start. I just listened to her. I didn't make my own choice in in that moment, which I probably should have. I should have known myself better at that moment, but I trusted her. 163 could have been one of those key words that you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Potentially. It could be. I'm just speculating. No, it's true. For a lot of it, we try not to put a number association to a cue. Instead, you're just trying to put a single word. Because if you put a number, you expect a number. You mm-hmm. expect a particular performance. Right. And once you achieve it, then you don't expect the next one. Or your expectations are so great to achieve that that you screw up on the lower ones. So that final year at SDSU was a bit of a struggle, but any positive takeaways for you? Any learning experiences from oh, your time at San Diego? Always. Always, always, always. There's always the biggest one. What was the biggest one? Goodness. Probably that I am in control of my own thoughts and that I am in control of myself and that there's nothing else in the world that you can control but yourself and how you react. And so... I couldn't control the way my coach reacted to me if I did good or if I did bad. I couldn't control what my parents would say. But do you know what I could control? I could control what I thought. I could think of how I would perceive those situations or if I could do it, what would I do or anything along those lines. So I, I learned in that year that my opinion, what I thought, it mattered. Because all before that, I just relied on everyone else to tell me what to do. So that year, I learned a lot about myself. That's huge. Mm -hmm. So after that year at San Diego State, what was the decision for you there in terms of do you continue on? Do you Mm. look for a change? What was it? After that competition, actually, where I triple faulted once again in high jump, um, as I was leaving the stadium, I wasn't allowed to compete anymore and complete the competition. My coach cut off that opportunity for me. And I actually ran into Nate, and he was one of the first coaches who ever tried to recruit me back in 2011 and he approached me and he said Nikki you need to leave you need to change something because you can tell you're not you anymore and I was like huh okay well it's really nice of you to say like I'm really distraught right now so I'm gonna go and so I left and um 
I didn't stay with my team for the rest of the competition at the hotel. Instead, I stayed with my parents, and they stayed at a goat farm. And so I just avoided all of that, and I sat there, and I did what LSU told me to do. I wrote down the pros and cons. And uh, at the end of the day, as I said, I'm hyper, hyper loyal. And so at the end, I was like, pro, my coach, my life. I did a four-year commitment. I stayed there for four years. I've only done two, not leaving. And it actually took a lot of convincing by my coach, uh, my coach now, he didn't actually convince me. He just, I did a competition with him and he showed me so much love and encouragement and a proper form of coaching. So that summer I did my NACAC team with him as the head coach for the heptathlon in Kamloops. And uh, my coach at SDSU was the head for USA heptathlon in Kamloops. And so she approached Les and told him that you have to yell at her and she'll do better you have to do this and that. And he told her, do not talk to my athlete during this competition. She is mine, not yours. And I was like, okay, well, all right, feisty. But during it, oh my goodness, Les made it fun. We had so much fun together. And he hadn't coached me yet any time in my life, besides when I was 13, maybe for a minute. And This is less romantic. Less romantic, my current, my current coach right now, yeah. And uh, he made it so fun, which is funny, because if you meet him, he is like... A very stern European man who looks terrifying, but he's like the biggest teddy bear you'll ever meet in your life. But uh, we didn't PB by any means. We ended up getting a stadium record for the javelin for the heptathlon together. And he taught me how to have fun again and to be grateful for the moments on the track and to really challenge yourself but not kill yourself over every moment. And that was convincing enough. At the end of that competition, I handed my coach papers saying that I was releasing myself. And she wouldn't release me because she knew I would go through the NCAA system potentially again and find another American school. Mm-hmm. So I technically escaped to Canada hmm. to avoid my contract. And uh, I went up to Les at the end of the camp, or competition, sorry, and I said, will you coach me? And he said, no, yeah, maybe. And at this time, he had four or five other heptathletes who were just really great girls. And I was like, this is going to be amazing. Big team to a small team kind of more of an aggressive coach to a kind coach who's positive and affirming. And also my sister lives in Calgary, so hey, why not? So how did you have to prove yourself to him in order to change his maybe neutral response to coaching you to, yes, I will take you under my wing? Man, I don't even know if I did, in all honesty. I'm pretty sure I just You told just didn't him. bring it up again. No, I'm, I, I think I just told him that I was coming. And it was like two weeks before school started. I went to the academic advisors at UFC and I was like, I need to get in courses. And they're like, well, you're going to have to crash. Good luck. And I went to the head coach and he said, yeah, I think we have some scholarship money. Like we can kind of help you out. And uh, in that process, I had lost my two years of education from San Diego and I didn't even care. Like nothing transferred. Oh, sorry. Like a women's studies class transferred. Mm. So I had two electives, I think, that came up out of 24 classes I took. And so at the time, I could care less. And I said, get me out and get me in here. And transferring to Canada, all of a sudden, people were nice. You could walk in the hallways and anybody would talk to you. And they were sincere. They were real. They cared. And I found one of my best friends here, and her name was Kellyanne. And, and they took me under her wing. Like, I, I did Christmas with them, for goodness sakes. I got a concussion with them, but hey, that's, that's another story. But um, Les took me on. And he said, yeah, here's the schedule. Come on in on September 7th, and we'll start training somewhere around September 7th. And I came in, and we and we trained. And I was still a negative person. I was still probably nicknamed Salt Block at that time. I had a lot of things to learn, and I still do. I'm still a pretty negative person. I'm so hard on myself. But every single day, he would try to drill into me 
some form of positivity or another. You had to deal with another ankle surgery though in 2015. Mm-hmm. So yet another big potential step back. So how did that rehab process go for you in Calgary versus rehabbing down in the States? Mm-hmm. That one was a lot different. Um, I actually competed in Korea at the FISU Games. And so I came back on the 15th and then my surgery was on the 16th. So on the 15th, me and my sister, we did everything. We went for ice cream, we went longboarding, I played volleyball. I did all of the things I knew I probably couldn't do for a couple months. I think I even did some squats because I was like, I'm not going to be able to do any of this. I got to get it in. And so we had jet lag surgery the next morning and the doctors were hilarious. My anesthesiologist was cracking jokes left, right, and center. I had waffles after surgery and me and my sister watched some movie on a laptop in one of the beds as I was healing up and until I got admitted from the hospital. And uh, so that just goes to show like how amazingly supportive my family is. Amazing. I've been like, through so oh, much with you. I know. <laughs> They're so kind. It's incredible. Uh, and at that time, I had also had two concussions, which is so funny. But yeah, and so Tamara took care of me and she drove me home and she helped me crutch around the house and, uh, and everything. And so she would drive me in to rehab. And at first I wasn't allowed to rehab. So I had to wait six weeks. And so what I did, it was my left ankle that I had surgery on. This is not safe at all. And, uh, what I did is I drove to Edmonton and I had to keep my foot elevated. And so after my surgery, I waited a week and I did my check-in to make sure there's no infections. And then I, uh, rolled down my window propped up my foot out the window and I drove to Edmonton. So I drove three hours with my foot out the window because it had to be elevated. Not safe. Don't tell cops. Neither is having it not elevated though. True. That could have caused a lot of problems. Yeah. And I, uh, <laughs> I went back home and I was like, man, I'm going to be nursed to health by my parents. And like my mom was at work and my dad was at work and I was by myself. And I remember my dad came home and I was standing in the kitchen on my crutches drinking some water. He's like, well, what's for dinner? And I was like, huh? you want me to cook? What? And he's like, yeah, you're the better cook of the family. Like, go for it. And I was like, I'm on crutches. And so he brought out all the food and I propped my foot up on the counter and I chopped and I, I made dinner and it was hilarious because I, I thought I was going to get babied so much like I did in the States by my old roommate, but no. Welcome had, home. Yeah, literally. And so they paid for my food and for my, my house at the time. And so I was like, yeah, whatever, like I'll cook for you. Say lovey. <laughs> and so I stayed with them until I was allowed to get my cast off. And in my mind, I had this perception that my cast would be off and right away I'd be water running or I'd be on the anti-gravity treadmill or the bike or I'd be doing so much bench press that I would look like an American football player. Like I was, I was ready for this. And then it took longer than expected to get me back walking. I think it took two and a half months for me to even put pressure on my foot. And then it took me three and a half months to get walking and then four and a half to be walking comfortably. My first time jogging again was end of November. And I remember it was the best day ever. And I took a video of it, of me running in wind sport. And I was like, guys, guess what? I'm running again. And I was so ecstatic. Going through that waiting process and mm-hmm. maybe your expectation of it not healing as fast as you want it to. And just knowing your personality and mm-hmm. how, <laughs> how much you need to be active. Yeah that's in your lifeblood. Mm-hmm. What was going through your mind mentally there? That was really hard. Uh, this was my hardest surgery. I wanted to quit so many times. My physiolo- or my physio, sorry, 
out at Winsport, Jenny, would deal with me sobbing on the bed of like the treatment bed at 7 a.m. because I couldn't I couldn't do things right. I wasn't getting where I wanted to be. I was I was gaining weight because I wasn't running, but I was still eating the same as an athlete. I was just I was so distraught. And with the past concussions, I didn't realize it, but symptoms with concussions can be depression or depressive symptoms. And so I didn't realize it. And so being an athlete, you get endorphins from working out. I wasn't allowed to work out. I had had concussions. I wasn't getting where I wanted to be. I was gaining weight. I was being told the Olympics are coming up next summer. Why aren't you running yet? And it was just the worst. Take me through that journey of maybe not a fully professionally diagnosed eating disorder, but maybe just troubles with, or that struggle with eating as an athlete, but Mm -hmm. again, that inactivity and just not being able to get on the track again. It's really difficult because in the States, it's it's commonly known, as I mentioned, that uh, there's the freshman 15 or the freshman 10. And it's just the reality of it. Like you go to the cafeteria and all of a sudden there's French fries, there's frozen yogurt, there's granola, there's there's everything that you never knew not to eat or that your parents told you not to have. Like you're not allowed to have ice cream for breakfast when you live at home. But then all of a sudden you go to university and you can have ice cream for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Why would you not do that? And so in my first year of university, even in the States, I kind of struggled and I gained a lot of weight and I thought it was muscle at the time. So I didn't really notice it. And then my second year, same thing, but they started monitoring me a little bit more and teaching me a bit about nutrition, but not in the right way, at least not to me, not for my body type. It was very restrictive. And so I I started learning that restrictive eating was necessary. And then in my first year in Calgary, I actually, it didn't even cross my mind because my sister, Tamara, as I mentioned, she's a great mentor of mine. And uh, she taught me proportions. She taught me what to eat and when. And like, I started to learn a little bit more. But her being a speed skater and endurance sport athlete, she needed more calories than me. But I was eating the same as her, and we have different body types, so I still put on weight. And so it was a very hard transition, because after that surgery, I was eating as though I was a speed skater in essence, and that I was burning off thousands and thousands of calories, and I wasn't. I was sitting around because I couldn't walk. I was sitting around, and my mom was pushing me through Ikea on a wheelchair because I couldn't do anything else. So it was so hard to all of a sudden look in the mirror and see your body change. And as we discussed earlier, perfection is out of reach constantly, but we still try to go for it. We still try to be these human beings that are perfect. And so when I looked in the mirror and I didn't see perfection, I thought, well, how do I fix it? When I was younger, I didn't understand eating disorders. I didn't understand why people would harm their bodies or why they would go to such extremes to get skinny, but that was when I was fit. That was when I was running every day and understood doing core and things like that. That was when I was happy with serotonin buzzes and all of those things. And then once I had the surgery, I was already so bent up about the expectations that I put on myself of how I should look, how well I should be progressing, how skinny I should have been. And I wasn't any of those things. And I was just getting deeper and deeper into a darker and darker hole. And I was even less pleasant to be around. It was, I felt very bad for my family at the time. I still remember the exact day where, where it actually was triggered in my mind. And it was at a Bible study one night, and they had cookies. And I was like, oh, I'll just have a cookie or two. And uh, someone made a comment about it. And they're like, oh, are you a bobsledder? And I was like, huh? And they're like, well, you, you look pretty pretty butch in short. And I was like, oh. 
And in that moment, all of a sudden it hit me. All of the years of people telling you what you should and shouldn't eat, what you should and shouldn't look like, and all of those things hit me at once. And I remember going home and just trying to get everything out of my system that I possibly could. And obviously, if you go to bed extremely hungry and with nothing in your system, you look smaller in the morning. And that's just, that's just your brain working against you. But then it developed into a habit. And so I would, I would eat all of the food because, hey, I knew I could get rid of all of the food in a minute. It was just such a corrupt circle and it just kept on happening and happening and happening. And I would excuse myself and I would be ever so kind and pleasant and come back a little bit more bloodshot in the eyes. And I was like, oh, it was just from coughing. Oh, I was brushing my teeth too hard and I hit the roof of my mouth. And I had so many lies, so many excuses. And um, luckily for me, my mom or my dad, I can't remember who, we were in Canmore and they caught me. They caught me walk in, they stood by the door, they heard. They heard me trying to throw up everything. I came out with eyes reddened and a tear streaking down my face and they they called me out on it in that moment. And for me, it wasn't technically known as a diagnosed binge and purge, eating disorder, anything like that, because it wasn't six months. That still kind of blows my mind that you have to have something for six months before it's diagnosed. Because for me, it's still something I struggle with and it's been two and a half years and I, I don't do that portion of my life anymore but it it's still something that crosses your mind continually and like you still have such huge expectations for your body and you still have a disordered view of your body disturbed as a lot of people call it hmm. it was a hard transition out of it but it, 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 it was kind of like weaning off of smoking where it's like some days you have none and some weeks you're doing really good and then there's some where you have a a full pack a day and it was hard and my parents wanted me to see a psych about it or a sports psych or anything and I I just kept on saying no 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 I didn't want to be seen as weak because all my life after after those surgeries I was weak I was pathetic I didn't want to be known as broken anymore and so I just said no luckily for me as I said my family is persistent I'm blessed beyond reason for that so it wasn't until I actually got a sports psych in the last year and a half two years that things started getting better. That was a game changer for you. Oh, completely so. They taught me how important, how powerful your brain is. And I took a sports psych course, actually, with Dave Paskovich. And uh, it was at 8 a.m. And I trained at 9. So I went to class from 8 to 8.50 with the regular students. And then at 9 o'clock, I'd go to training. And during hill sprints, I would think about what we just learned. And I would apply it. And I slowly but surely got stronger and stronger. I didn't even have a sports tech at the time, but I got stronger and stronger with those methods alone. I was like, oh, this all makes sense now. And so, yeah, I, I never realized how much it helped to talk to somebody. And even if they hadn't gone through it, but they listened and they just, they wanted to help. There was no condemnation. There was no judgment. There was no, you're not perfect. It was just, guess what? I'm here to listen to you. If you want my help, you can take my help. If you don't, that's okay. But I'm going to keep on loving you. And it was just, it was remarkable. And of course, your parents, they try that, but your parents can only go so far. Wow. Even to this day, though, I always tell people, like, I try to I try to make that part known. Like, I, I it's not my favorite story to tell, obviously, because as I said, we don't want to seem weak. We don't want to seem imperfect, but... It's important, I believe. It is. And after sharing it, I've had so many girls come forth and tell me that they have struggled with it as well. 
They struggle with diets, with images that they see on the internet of magazines, of models, of other athletes. And they even told us that like some other athletes saw our team as a stumbling block of perfection because our girls were all five foot nine, five foot ten girls, and they're all lean heptathletes and like pretty strong. And we run around in our shorts and our sports bras in the oval and like I got told that we were sometimes the idealistic body that people were looking for. And I was like, what? Mine? No, I hate mine. I like yours. And like, you always want what you can't have. Someone recently told me that the more you talk about something, the more you bring things to the surface, the less power that it has over you. Mm-hmm. Would you agree that was true for you as you started to rebound from this and start creating new habits in your life around your dietary adventures Mm -hmm. it's true it goes both ways it's that all of a sudden your words become less powerful in your mind but then they also become more real and it's when you say it out loud when you tell somebody all of a sudden you have someone to keep you accountable you have someone that knows your struggle and that knows you a little bit deeper and can help you and so they do lose power after a while because you give that power to somebody and they take it so one of well, my boyfriend actually, he always says, help me carry your burden because it's half as heavy if you let me carry some of it. And so that's the reality of the situation. It's if you say those words out loud, if you allow someone to help you and to hear you out and hear your story, it becomes that much lighter. So we hit the summer of 2016 Olympics in Rio, but already in the rearview mirror for you. Mm-hmm. But there's an interesting story in that summer where you, it's not funny because it's a concussion, Mm -hmm. but the way it happened potentially. Yeah, it was interesting. So at the time I was avoiding all thing Olympics and I just, I was working at Lululemon and just being a yogi, I was drinking the Kool-Aid. It was great. And everyone was happy and life was just Gucci and I loved it. And um, I was actually biking downtown to go volunteer at a Lululemon event on 4th Street and uh it was funny actually i was on the phone with my sister i had headphones on earlier and i was biking down home road and uh i biked past her actually we didn't even notice and she's like nikki get off the phone don't get hit by a car and i was like okay and so i just i hung up on her and i kept on biking and about 20 minutes later i call her back and i'm just sobbing and i'm like tamara come pick me up and she's like what happened i was like i got hit by a car and she's like what i was like the police are here i have to go and so i hung up and uh Tamara comes and she shows up and my bike is all bent up and funky. Luckily, it wasn't too bad of a hit, but uh, he ended up turning left into a bike lane and there's a big sign that says yield to cyclists and he he just didn't see me. And so I I was fortunate I didn't get like thrown too far, but I kind of ricocheted off the front end of his car and hit my head. And luckily, there was a man in a cab across the street and he saw everything. And so he jumped out and is running across the street, waving his arms, trying to get to me and make sure that I'm okay. And he's trying to chase down this guy because he, he drove away. No. He hit me and he drove away. And so it's not like I could file for insurance claims, a broken bike, any physio, anything. And so uh, he's trying to take care of me and my sister pulls up and the police are there. And I'm, I'm probably writing the stupidest police report ever. Because if you haven't heard, I, I'm very long-winded stories. I'm concussed at the time and I'm describing everything humanly possible because that's just who I am. My sister knows the witness somehow through sport. and uh, Small world. I know, right? Little blessings all the way. 
And we finish the police report. We load up my bike into the car, and Village Ice Cream is just across the way. So we go get ice cream. And, and I'm sitting there, and like, as I said, like, I love ice cream. And usually I'm inhaling it, and I'm sitting there, and I'm slowly spooning, like, morsel by morsel into my mouth. And my sister's like, oh, okay, get in the car. We're taking you to the hospital. And so we went to Rocky View Hospital. I walked in to emerge, and I'm standing there, and I'm kind of dizzy and looking at the lady and trying to be polite. She's asking me questions. She's like, so, like, why are you here? And I'm like, I got hit by a car. And she's like, oh, my gosh. And they grab a wheelchair and come flying in, put me down. Next thing I know, I'm on a spinal board with a neck rest and, like, all the crazy things. And they do a full MRI and CAT scan on me, and I'm just like, whew, life. Life is just coming at me and hitting me so hard. I remember calling into work being like, hey, I can't come in. I got hit by a car. And they're like, what? And uh, they know me really well. So they sent me an edible arrangements because, as I said, I love food. It's great. They sent me chocolate-covered strawberries. Life was good. And my sister loaded me up into the car once again with my uh, edible arrangements on my lap. And we drove to Edmonton. And uh, With we were, your foot not out the window No, 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 time. foot out the window okay, this time. Good. This time we were just really calm because <laughs> I was trying not to get too dizzy from being concussed again. And uh, at this time, I'm thinking, like, this, this turns into a little bit of a faith story. I hope you're ready for a whirlwind here. And uh, at this time, I was thinking, I was like, goodness gracious, God, you are just painting me through the ringer. And I was like, you are having way too much fun with me right now. And I was like, just give me, a, like, a little drop of sunshine, maybe? And, uh, no. But so me and my sister went out. We joined my parents out at um, Sunshine Point, I think it was actually called. And it was a Bible camp. And uh, they had a little trailer set up and a hammock. And so I, I pretty much lived in the hammock. And my mom every morning would be like, come to church with me. And I was like, eh, no. I don't want to deal with the loud noise. I don't want to deal with the cranky preacher. Not the pre- cranky, sorry, the preachers. And I was like, my head hurts. My back is really tight. I don't want to do it. And my dad had been working on my back a little here and there, trying to loosen it up. And so he knew how tight it was. And she asked me every single day. And then the end of the weekend came and me and my sister were going to drive back to Calgary. And I drove back into St. Albert with her. And then I was like, do you know what? No, like something is telling me I need to stay. And so I loaded into my mom's car and I drove back out to the lake by myself. You should never let a concussed person drive themselves. But I did. And so I stayed with her. And that night she was like, Nikki, come to church with me. And I was like, fine. I'll walk with you to the tabernacle. And then I'm walking back to my hammock and I'm lying back down. Meeting you in the middle. Compromise. And so we started walking over to the tabernacle and I could hear the music and I could, I could feel my head just pulsing with the music. And I was like, oh, no, I don't want to be here right now. <laughs> and a grandma, a lovely older lady, comes up to me and she puts her hand on my shoulder and she's like, Nikki, in God's name be healed. And I sat there laughing. And I was like, oh, thank you. I will take your prayer. And I had this imaginary piggy bank of prayers. And I'll put that in there. And maybe sooner or later, I'll offer it to God. And he'll take it. And he'll finally heal me. And I was like, yeah, that's that. thank you. Thank you, little old lady. That was great. And uh, so my parents stood there talking. And they're like, come on, Nikki, we're going into the service. I was like, no, my head hurts. And they're like, but does it? And I was like, huh. And I sat there and I thought and I thought and I thought. And I was like, No. Dad, check my back. And so he checks my back. And he's like, it's so much looser. And I was like, no way. So we go into the service and we sit at the very far back right corner of it. So just in case it's too loud, I can leave if I need to, if it still hurts or whatever. And I was still skeptical at this time. Mm -hmm. Me and God had been through the ring of that whole year. 
I was not in a faith zone. I was not in a trusting zone. I didn't believe that he was good. And I was sitting there, and the pastor at the front, Maria, and she was going back and forth, and she she was just preaching her heart out. And she stopped, and she looked straight at me, and she pointed and she said, I need to talk to you after this service. And I was like, oh, what? And it was just remarkable, because the whole church just turns and looks back at me. And I was like, hey, like, little blonde girl back here, don't mind me. And so we finished the service. She was wonderful. And then I went up to her at the end and was standing there talking. She's like, I see you on an international stage competing. I see you proclaiming God's name and his love and his joy on that international stage. She's like, don't you dare give up. And I remember just standing there and I was like, huh. She was in town for one night, preaching for one night. And she does a global ministry and she rotates around. And I happened to catch that one night, all because I had an inkling to drive back from St. Albert to go back to this lake while I'm concussed, get healed by a little old lady, and then have her speak into my life. And I remember after that, I was just on fire for God. And I was like, okay, I get it. You connected the dots. You brought it all back to you. And I was like, okay, God is sovereign. God is good. It makes sense again. And so it was just a crazy, crazy summer that led into a great season after that. And you were talking about earlier that it was just hard to trust in that season. Mm -hmm. Did those walls come down at that moment? Or was it more of a process? Yeah, it was like a halfway down. It crumbled a little bit at first because I I still, I was still skeptic. And I was still kind of like, well, maybe it was just coincidence. Like maybe perhaps God was just like, oh, like tinge of sunshine, here you go. And so, uh, it slowly chipping away at it. Slowly but surely, yeah. How do you how do you break a heart? You you slowly chip at it. I remember training that base season, and I I had little to no pain, and I was happy training again. My first pentathlon of the season, we had a thing that if I broke forty two hundred points in the pent, my dad had to shave his mustache, which he had had for thirty eight years or something ridiculous like that. And I remember I did hurdles. And I was terrified, and I went to high jump, and I PB'd in high jump, and I looked at my dad in the stands, and I put my hand over my, my, my mouth like a little fake mustache. And I was like, it's coming off. And the commentator knew, my coach knew, my family knew, and everyone in the crowd knew, and they were with me on that little journey. And so it was so funny. And so by the end of it, we have pictures of him shaving it off and all this stuff, and like we had to go back to the track the next day to prove that he did it. And uh, Did he have tears? No, he, was, he, he felt like a younger man. He's still shaved off to this day yeah it's great and uh and after that everything just kept on going on this amazing incline with track nothing hurt everything all of a sudden felt like I was free I had no expectations and I just competed and it was the best season I've ever had I I got 6,000 points in the heptathlon I won nationals I won pan american cup I won the california meet I was the top ranked heptathlete in canada all of a sudden, and I was like, what in tarnation has happened here? And it was just such a stark contrast between the bitter and negative and salty person that I was into all of a sudden a happy person again and someone who was willing to share their story and to encourage others and just enjoy the process once again. And like, honestly, my life just, it's, it was an awesome and amazing uphill trend. So I like to coin that phase in your life, the revival of Nikki. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then that really brought back the belief and then your sights set on Olympics. 
mm-hmm. for Tokyo coming up. So what steps did you take after that in order to get yourself seriously prepped for the Olympics? So after that year, after nationals, after winning nationals, all of a sudden I realized like, holy goodness crap, like I, I could actually make it. I could do this. Like I had a subpar heptathlon at nationals and I got 6,000 points. I'm like, if I would have had even a semi-decent one, I would have had Olympic standard. And all of a sudden it came back. The spark came back and I was like, I am totally capable of doing this. And I, I have an email screenshot from my coach and it says, Nikki, congratulations. We're going to the Olympics one day. Love less. And I was like, love? Oh, he loves me. That's great. And I totally didn't even notice the Olympics part, but actually I did. And I was in tears that night and I was like, we're doing it. We're going for it. I 100% finally believe in that again. And uh, I went to Taiwan for a competition again for FISU and I was once again, podium. I was expected to podium. Man, this just keeps on happening. Life, curveballs. Okay, so time out here. How, time do, out. how do you handle the expectations to podium now than versus when you first started? Uh, now it's just different now. Well, this past nationals in Ottawa, if you ask anybody, I was not a happy person because I, I had these huge expectations that I was supposed to be phenomenal. I was supposed to get Olympic standard this year and it, it, that was, that was my plan. Um, coming off of Australia, I realized that I was so fit and I was so capable, but I, I, I crumbled a little bit under the pressure there. Actually, I didn't crumble. I got top six in Australia and I'm still really proud of that. I've never been in front of a stadium of 40,000 people before chanting your name. That's insane. Oh, I've never been in a deafening crowd like that. It was remarkable. Australia, you have great crowds. I spoke with a lady afterwards, and she was doing an interview with me, and she was like, do you see now that you are changing lives, that you are standing amongst thousands of people proclaiming God's name, and you got sixth? Does that show you that even if you're not on top, you can still make an impact. And that, that was what blew me away in that moment. It shattered all of my expectations. Because all of a sudden I realized, once again, it doesn't, it doesn't matter necessarily what you score. It doesn't matter if you're first, second, or third. Or even if you're last, you're there, you're competing, you're showing people your passions and your loves, and you can impact people. So now, the expectations, it's not just on track. It's a platform now. Of course, I still want to do the best. I want to go to Tokyo. I want to stand amongst the top heptathletes in the world. I want to share God's story, how we got there, the adversities that we've had to come. I believe that's where I belong. Let's transition a little bit into creating more exposure and popularity around your sport and maybe even track and field athletics, if you will, altogether. I just feel that North American society, they become an expert at athletics every four years when it comes on during the Olympics. But outside of it, absolute crickets. So what is the discussion like amongst the track and field community on maybe ways to get people more excited about the sport? Mm -hmm. Well, first question is actually for you. Did you know what the heptathlon was before you knew my name? No, but Mm -hmm. I knew the decathlon Okay. From Ashton Eaton, but... There you go. So some, some knowledge of it. So And I shouldn't know that, but I do. Another, another Oregon duck. Mm-hmm. Another amazing athlete, world record holder. Right, yeah. Oh, yeah. But course. I only knew of him because of the Olympics. hmm Do I follow Ashton Eaton outside of it? No. No. I probably should because he's an amazing athlete. Yeah. But like most North Americans, we don't. Mm-hmm. 
That's like a lot of realms in life, though, in general. Like, you could ask me who's the highest paid musician right now in the world, and I would not have a clue. You could ask me who has the best TED talk out there. Not a clue. So you have to remember that there are spheres in the world. We have different groups with different belongings, and um, it's always hard to be a master of everything. Being a heptathlete, we try to be a master of seven events. I hardly know the rest of my competitors. I know 10 to 15 of the top heptathletes in the world. And those are the ones that I set my eyes on. I don't know who's up and coming. I don't know anything else about that. And it is difficult because ignorance sometimes is inevitable. And uh, it is true. Every four years, everyone cares. Six months prior to the Olympic Games, that is the ideal time to get sponsors. That's also the ideal time to not talk to anyone and only focus on yourself so you can get ready for the Olympics. Really hard thing to balance. As soon as the Olympic Games are done, you have about six weeks to try to get your sponsors. After that, no one cares anymore. And it's really difficult to get sponsors. And a lot of it is who you know and how you can tell your story, how you can market yourself, and who's interested in investing in you and in your dream. And so that's learning how to... Sell yourself? Yeah, more or less, it's how to sell yourself in a lot of ways. And it sounds horrible, but that's the reality of it. And so you have to create a story. You have to create something that someone wants to buy. People want to buy happiness. People want to buy youthfulness. People want to buy into emotion and mystery. And you're trying to find a sponsor who you can make them feel for you and who can feel the same. And so you want to join a community and you want to have them invest in you and buy into you. So for me, I've always struggled with it because my national sport organization and myself, for some odd reason, don't see eye to eye. I see myself as a valuable candidate to get carding and financial assistance. They perhaps do not. And so even when I had two Canadian records and I had been on a bunch of Canadian teams... They still didn't cover me. When I was the top national ranked heptathlete last year, I was in 6,000. I was 35th in the world, and they wouldn't cover me. And it's hard to believe in yourself if your own national sport organization that knows everything about you, that knows what you've come through, the ups and the downs, they know where your performances are in the world, and they don't even believe in you. How are you supposed to make a company believe in you? So I always struggled with that point of things, and I thought if I didn't deserve it from Athletics Canada, I didn't deserve it from anybody else. And so once again, I'm so fortunate to have a family who cares and who loves and who is very successful as well. And so they've helped me along the way. And... Uh, Tamara actually tagged me in something on Instagram, and it was a donut competition. I laughed so hard, and I was like, I don't want to do it. And it was only $500 if you got a whole bunch of people to like this post. And I thought it was just stupid, and I was like, 500 bucks for all that effort? I was like, oh, that's awful. And then she reminded me that you don't know about the connections you might make through that process. And I was like, okay, you're right. And so I fought for it. I didn't end up winning the competition. A dancer girl won it instead. She's another phenomenal athlete. And uh, the company wrote me, though. And they said, we love your story, and we want to help you sell it. We're going to give you $400 instead. And that money directly went to my coach because he is a phenomenal man. Hasn't asked me for a penny in the last four years I've trained with him. Wow. And so he trains me like two to three hours a day, five days a week. And he still travels himself to training camps, competitions, everything. He doesn't ask for a penny. Just donut money. Yeah, apparently. He laughed at me when I first got the sponsor. He's like, donuts? Do not you dare eat those. And I was like, puns. But uh, he's quite happy with it now. And this connection has been amazing. 
And so they're gluten-free protein baked donuts and they're, they're actually pretty good. I like them. I'm not allowed to eat them though. Um, we're very strict with our diets. But I can. You so can, feel free to I stop will, I will bring you by. But uh, this company joined me because they saw my hashtag, go with the O. And instead of it being go with the O, why not be go with the donut? And so in all honesty, they saw a way that they could market me along with them. And they heard my story and they realized, they're like, you were collecting bottles at one point in time to pay for things. Like, as an elite athlete, you shouldn't have to do that. And so they're currently even helping me, like one of the managers for that is helping me market myself right now and build a portfolio that I can take to other companies and to get out. And so it's all a game of who you know and who's willing to help you. And it's just been such an amazing journey with this company. They're a startup company here in Calgary, and they're starting to reach across Canada now. And their products are going across Canada. And they have offered me an amazing opportunity. So once a month on Saturdays, we're going to be down in TD Square. You can come out for a 50-50 day, and we'll give you some free donut samples. And I'll be helping mentor some of the kids in the communities and just helping teach them a little bit more about sport and the opportunities that it can bring them. What's the name of the company again? So it's Baked Brands Donut Baked Company. Brands, perfect. Yeah, they're amazing. And so they took on that opportunity to work alongside me. And with that, it's created a snowball effect. So it only took one, but now we're rolling. Now I'm finally starting to see a little bit of stability in finances. Now I can pay for treatment and not have to worry if I'm going to break the bank and be able to afford my groceries later on too. And so it is difficult it's really hard to be a full-time athlete. People think it's just a walk in the park and you go train and then you eat and you sleep and you do nothing. And I'm like, well, you're not wrong in some degree, but I can't work because if I stand too long, you burn out too much energy. If you sit too long, you cramp up and you create problems in your body. So I'm like, you have to have a dynamic. So it's been such a journey learning about that. It's amazing because now they've helped me to be able to achieve my dream. They're helping to cover me financially so I can volunteer more. But I think the real story there is, yet again, listen to your sister. Mm-hmm. Shout out to oh. Tamara. Tamara Odenarn, like, I wouldn't be here without you. I still owe her a couple donuts, by the way. I think that's a good place to end this conversation, but I know there's a lot more that we could go into, so I would just love to save that for another episode. But uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Mm-hmm. And thank you, Jeremy, for letting me join in on this podcast and share a little bit of my story. There is 24 years of it. Don't forget, go with the O. Yes, hashtag go with the O and get some baked brand donuts into you. They're good stuff. Thank you for listening to this episode of Reading the Play. For more content, don't forget to hit that subscribe button. You can also download other episodes at sportcalgary.ca and check out the Facebook page Reading the Play. To stay up to date on the latest RTP news, including new episodes, make sure to follow on Instagram at Reading the Play and myself, Jeremy Lee at Legacy. I really hope there is a piece of Nikki's story that impacts, inspires, and ignites you to help you win your day. Maybe it also inspires you to help support Nikki as she chases down her dream to make the Summer Olympics in 2020 in Tokyo. And as always, I'll catch you in the next episode.